Children are dismissed to children's church. Kids up to the sixth grade, sorry about that. They were anxiously waiting to get out of my presence and get in the presence of the children's church workers. So we appreciate that. I mentioned the new members class. I'm going to pass this around now. I was going to pass it around during my um, announcements earlier, but we don't want to discriminate against those that come two minutes late here at Calvary or those that come 10 minutes late here at Calvary. So you're all welcome here. If you would just take it, pass it around. If you're interested in the membership class, do sign up, put your contact information on there. Make sure it gets to both sides of the sanctuary, please. Appreciate that. Would you bow with me one more time for prayer as we need God's help clearly in our time? Heavenly Father, would you please give us eyes so that we could see, give ears that would hear, and give hearts that would be receptive to whatever change you might have for us on this day. We thank you for your amazing word. We thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit with us even right now. We would ask that he would be our teacher, that you would allow us, God, for this time to shut out as much as possible as we are serious about your word. And we thank you that we can take it in today. Would you make us better children of yours because of it? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. As has been mentioned already, it is very, very cold outside. This doesn't surprise anybody Uh, as we get into this kind of season. It has been a lot colder than some are used to. I have some wonderful former snowbird friends that have chosen to not go south, and this has been the year they've chosen to not go south. And so if you know one or two of them and have a strong prayer life, you pray for them, and uh, maybe even give them a pair of gloves or a hat if you have an extra, because they're facing quite a unique winter this year. When we think of the temperatures getting this cold, sometimes our minds will go to individuals that do not have a home. There are many homeless. Even in Lapeer, we have homeless. I think of ministries like The Refuge and how they will minister to and take in people um, that are homeless. I heard a recent story of a homeless man. It was actually in the Chicago area, and the gentleman was only known by his first name. And he had floated around multiple uh, missions, homeless shelters. And as he would float around, it was years that he was homeless and nobody knew much about him except for his first name. The gentleman ended up passing away. And upon some investigation, they found out what his last name was. And upon further investigation, they found out that this homeless man actually was the sole benefactor of an inheritance of $4.5 million dollars. He had died homeless, and yet he had a relative, a distant relative in England that had died and left him more than four and a half million dollars. Can you imagine someone living like a pauper, living like a homeless individual when they had such incredible resources that were actually theirs? I want to suggest to us this morning that there are many Christians maybe even some of you that have made a decision to live, try to live the Christian life, to try to live the way that God or that even um, our community tells us how Christians are supposed to be, and yet they are doing it without a proper understanding of what resources they actually have. This is a wonderful introduction for us to the book of Ephesians. We're going to begin today 
our study in this book, and I want to go ahead and give you the takeaway. Some of you take notes, and I'll go ahead and give you the takeaway right off the bat, um, as this will, today will be an introduction to the book. We will just touch the first couple verses um, in our study, but um, as we look at that, let me see if I can get that back up there. There it is. Um, oh, I think I'm fast-forwarding. Sharon, I'm going to let you take the slides, because clearly I've got some thumb problems this morning with my clicker. And so the takeaway from that is this. Let me read it for you. In order for us to be successful at what God wants us to do, we must first know what God has done for us and as a result, who we have become. And so if you want to live the Christian life in a way like you've heard about, like would please your mother or your grandmother, in a way that the community knows you're supposed to live, I want to suggest to us that to have good success with this, you need to first of all know what God has done for you. And as a result, if you know Christ, what you have become. Ephesians was written in exactly this order. For introduction's sake, the first three chapters in Ephesians talk about who we are in Jesus Christ. And then the second half of the book goes exactly to what we're supposed to do. So this is who you are, the richness of this, the grandness of this. And if you are an individual who really um, tries to stay away from exaggeration, if you are like me and you think exaggeration is nothing more than a lie, you're going to struggle a little bit as we go through this book because the, the, the language is so lofty. You're going to hear some of these things and you're going to think the Apostle Paul is just clearly, you know, trying to build this up. And he's not exaggerating. There's no lie found in it. There are unsearchable riches that we are going to learn about in the first three chapters of this book. One author breaks it down this way. He says the first half is our doctrine and the second half is our duty. And the point that I want to start with is many individuals are moving through their journey with Christ hearing what they're supposed to do. Maybe you're an individual like that. Maybe you've been hearing for years, this is, about, this is how you're supposed to live your life. This is what you're supposed to do. And you've gone for years thinking, yes, I'm hearing it again, but I keep failing. I can't figure out how to have success with doing what God wants me to do. There's even a good peer pressure among Christian communities, and I would say even in our country. There's a peer pressure to live in a specific way that reflects Judeo-Christian values. And you and I no doubt need to conduct ourselves in a manner that reflects Jesus Christ. But there are many that are discouraged because they know what they're supposed to do and they fail. And they have this one area that it's really a struggle for them. And year after year they fail. I think maybe with it being early in the calendar year, 2018, there are some who have said at the end of the last calendar year okay this is the year i'm going to do it i'm going to work hard at it and some of you just seven days into it have said oh i've already failed i've already let it fall and when you look at what god wants you to do you're not going to have continued and fulfilling success until you know what you are in God. And that's why Ephesians is so helpful. So if you are one of these who continually struggles with doing what God wants you to do, let me encourage you to hold on because this is going to be an encouraging study for us. 
to help us better understand, I want to go ahead and take some of us back to school. For some of you, you won't mind that too much. You love the old school days. For some of you, school is a four-letter word. You don't care for that too much. But for those of us, just to help us with this breakdown in the introduction of the book, I want to take us back to seventh grade grammar, okay? Now, I tried this out on my family last night, hoping I could make it interesting, and I failed last night. I lost all of their interest talking about grammar and verbs. So let me see if I can do a little bit better today. Because when we go back to seventh grade grammar, I want to start with a question and ask you this. Don't raise your hand. All right, but you can smile inside if you know the answer. If you can remember what an indicative verb is, an indicative verb, that's going to be very, very helpful for you when it comes to our study, especially in the first three chapters. An indicative verb is a verb that states a fact. And I'm talking about that because specifically in these first three chapters, which we're not going to cover, um, we're, not going to, we're, we're going to touch the first two verses today. But if you have this understanding, and then as you go and read through the book in the future, I want you to have this in the back of your mind. For the first three chapters, we find indicative verbs all throughout. Indicative verb is a verb that states a fact. And then you can smile if you want, if you can remember what an imperative verb is. An imperative verb. All right, I see some heads shaking no there. I didn't know either. I had to do some research on it, okay? An imperative verb is a verb that gives a command, all right? You can still forget these, the names of these verbs, but what I don't want you to forget is that in the first three chapters of our study, we're going to be looking at facts, what you are in Christ. In the last three chapters, we're going to be looking at what we are supposed to do. Um, I'll tell you what. There is a one exception in the first three chapters. One I- exception to this, it's not an indicative verb. And if you can come up with that, I will give you a prize um, after the service. If you can come to me and tell me what that one exception is, um, one non-indicative verb in the first three chapters, I will give you a prize. I talked to someone this morning who has taught through this passage in Greek. So I went ahead and grabbed two prizes is what I have because he'll probably, he'll probably get a prize and someone else maybe if you can find that other verb that's not in the indicative. Let me go ahead and let me just listen. Would you just listen for the tense here? I'm going to read some verses that this is not giving a command, but it is stating a fact. Just listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. And I could go on and we will jump into this in detail. But the point is this, you need to understand that we have a beautiful place that God has put us. And these first three chapters talk all about that. What does this mean for us what does this mean it means if you want success in what god wants you to do you need to understand how you have been changed it very well could be that some of you have not been changed necessarily perhaps you live by judeo-christian values perhaps you've attended church for a number of years maybe even all your life but there has never actually been a change in your life where you follow Jesus Christ, where you've accepted him as Savior. There's a beautiful opportunity for you in 
this study. Let me go ahead and give a, just a, a quick summary of some of the things that we're going to go over. In chapter one, we're going to see how it describes God's plan. We see, we've already talked about, um, in, on December 31st, we talked about God's plan before the foundations of the world and what he was going to do. And in chapter one, we're going to look at some of the detail of God's plan of how God's going to be glorified by men and women coming to Christ and the plan in which he does this is called election. And we'll see the entire trinity through that chapter. In chapter two, we're gonna look at what Christ did to take us from a place of separation to a place of adoption all informing us of our identity in Christ. In chapter three, we're going to be teaching about a mystery, a mystery that is the church. They did not know about the church in the Old Testament. Very much so, this was a mystery. We're gonna look in detail about that. And then as we jump into that practical time, chapters four, five, and six, what does God want you to do? Once you learn who you are, you're going to know better what God wants you to do to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And it talks about our home, it talks about your marriage, it talks about parenting, it talks about in the workplace, it talks about how to conduct yourself in every aspect. And it begins with how we do some of those things, with humility and forgiveness. There's not one major theme, but Paul really hammers in on unity because we had Gentiles and we had Jews and they needed to get unified and that was a struggle for them. And so Paul gives instruction for us how to conduct ourselves in the world and in the home and in the workplace. And just before we jump any further, let me give one colorful illustration because I've gone over um, the impact that this book has made in several lives and I've heard people talk about it and brag on God because of their study in Ephesians but one of them kind of jumped off the page to me and I want to share it for you because it comes from a former seminary president and when he was a young man really an older boy how this book and a study of it impacted his life let me read you what he wrote down as far as the impact that Ephesians had on him. And I'm trying to build this up for you so that hopefully we can whet your appetite for the next several months as we look at this book. Here's what he said. I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened, I, had been, I have come really alive. I was really alive, he says. Those are the words of John McKay, who's the former president of Princeton Theological Seminary. And when he was a 14-year-old boy, he read through and studied through the book of Ephesians, and it changed his life. Well, are you ready? Are you ready to jump into this? I'm not sure how long we'll be in it. Um, I don't know if we'll get through it in this year. We take breaks for Easter and for other times. So we might get through it in the calendar year. It might take longer than that. I did mention last week, I think there's about 20 paragraphs that we find here in Ephesians. So I'm going to kind of use that as a basis. The letter written by Paul while he was under house arrest in Rome, waiting to appear before Caesar. Now for those of you who are in our Acts study, that's gonna ring some bells. The Apostle Paul, this is a prison epistle. He's waiting to appear before Caesar. That's when this was written. He wrote it nearly 10 years after he had left Ephesus for the second time. 
But Ephesians is different in this way. Sometimes we just group these together, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I understand that. But Ephesians is different in the Apostle, Paul, in the Apostle Paul's writings in this way. It's different because he does not address a specific problem. When you look at most of Paul's writings, he's talking about some kind of problem in the church, a false teaching, maybe a heresy that's going on. In Corinthians, he addresses the quarreling that's going on between believers that's going to tear the church apart. When he writes Galatians, he addresses legalism and the danger of it. When he writes Colossians, even though he had not been to that church himself, he is addressing the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, as some people were trying to make some things equal with Christ. So he's addressing problems one after another in his writings. In First and Second Timothy, it's false doctrine. And so as we study Paul's writings, it seems that he was always battling something. A problem came up, somebody brought it to his attention, and so quickly he wrote a response under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and gave that out to them. That's the majority of the writings that we find from Paul. This begs the question, what would it be like if the Apostle Paul didn't have to address some quarreling people or a heresy that had come up? What would it be like if the Apostle Paul was able literally just to write a wonderful letter of encouragement that was overflowing from the richness of what he understood of God's grace? That's exactly what we are about to jump into. The Apostle Paul, in a beautiful and sweet manner, writing this from an overflow of the riches of God to the believer. From our study in the book of Acts, we learned that Paul traveled to Ephesus on both his second and third missionary journey. He invested much time there. I believe he was there longer than any other local church. Not quite three years is how long the Apostle Paul was in Ephesus. And so all this sets us up. If you're not already there, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And that's been mostly introduction. And I'm just going to touch on the first couple verses today. And then we'll have a little bit of a takeaway. So Ephesians chapter 1. And the Apostle Paul, um, he has authority, and we see that right in the first verse where it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in, in Ephesus and are grateful in, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So first of all, we find Paul's authority to write. He is an apostle, and he was not an apostle by his own choosing. Paul wasn't seeking that out to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. You'll remember very clearly that he was trying to persecute the church. He was anti-Christ. And God sought him out and knocked him down one day and showed him the light after he was blinded for a short time. Paul had authority as an apostle, not because he chose to be, but because, because God called him to be an apostle an apostle, and because God gifted him in that way. And next we see who the letter is addressed to. To the saints in Ephesus is who it says. Now, we know he's not addressing a specific problem, and let me just give you one more um, introductory fact about the book of Ephesians. We believe this to be a cyclical book or a book that was circulated among multiple churches. So since he wasn't writing it to one specific church, 
one specific city to address one specific problem, very much so it is believed that this was a book that was written and went to Ephesus and the earliest manuscripts actually have that blank where the word Ephesus is written. But the idea was that they would fill in the name of their church there. So it was a book that was to be circulated among all the area churches that were there in that region. And right here we have our division. I Hopefully you saw the division of the book earlier, chapters 1, 2, and 3, chapters 4, 5, and 6. And we find the division actually in the first verse where it says that it's written to the saints in Ephesus, that is their position, and it also says it's written to those who are faithful. So you have what God has done for them, and then you have what they are to be doing. Now what is a saint? What is a saint? A saint means a person that is set apart. And for those of you who might have a background where they have um, changed the definition of this word saint, let me go ahead and make it very, very clear this morning because some have misused this word. A saint is not an elite Christian who has attained a certain status. That is not what a saint is. A saint is one who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's what a saint is. One old Bible teacher used to say it this way, you're either a saint or you're an ain't, one or the other. That's how he put it. And I want this to sink in for you because I want you to understand that if you know Jesus Christ today, that you are a saint. Now, to help us with that, I want you to go ahead and I want you to talk a little bit. And if you know the person, the name of the person next to you, I want you to talk to them in just a second, okay? And then I want them to respond back. If you know the name of the person next to you, I want you to say, hello, saint, and then fill in their name. I'm going to use Bill here because Bill's got nobody next to him. And I'm going to say, hello, Saint Bill. And he's going to say, hello, Saint Jeremy, just like that. So look next to you there. See if you know their, if you don't know their name, you can get it real quick, all right? And uh, on a count of three, we're going to do this. We're going to say, hello, wait, wait for it. All right. Okay, one. Two, three. Hello, St. Bill. Yes, Saint. Now, hopefully for some of you, that wasn't coming out of your mouth in a, in a, with a bad taste with a person next to you. Hang on a second. I know that guy. If you were looking at your spouse, I mean, that might be at least a conversation, right? No, it's not. If someone is a follower of Jesus Christ, they are a saint. This book is addressed to the saints at Ephesus, that's what we find here. Then look in verse two. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This was the standard Christian greeting of that day. Grace to you. It's equivalent to what we say today and how are you? How are you is what we would say today. Back in that day, they would say grace to you. Paul adds to it. And he mentions God the Father and God the Son in his greeting. We understand that grace means kindness towards undeserving people. And it is because I have grace that I can have peace with God. It's interesting that Paul begins his study with grace and peace and he ends this letter, not his study, but his letter, and he ends his letter with peace and and grace. You can turn right to the last chapter and see peace and grace is how he ends that. All right. What are we supposed to do with this? I know I've only given you two verses. We'll cover more than two typically as we go. But what can you do with this? Well, number one, I hope that you can move. If you're in a place where you're one who has struggled 
who has tried, who has worked with all of your might and all of your strength to live a good Christian life, to do what God wants you to do, but you've yet to have a good understanding of what God has made you into. I hope you can move from one category to another. No longer be part of the group of Christians who struggle year after year to keep their list of do's and don'ts without first properly learning who you are. I didn't put this down on the slides, and I'm not sure if this is too ambitious of a goal of our study, but maybe for some of you, you can use that verbiage that we started with, with John McKay, and what his study of this book meant to him. How wonderful it would be if some of you, as a result of our time looking at this letter, would say, along with John McKay, I have a new outlook. Or I have new, I have new attitudes towards other people. Or I love God in a way that I did not before. Jesus Christ has become the center of everything. Maybe some would say, I am really alive. This book is so full of God's richness. Number two, and maybe more practically, I'm just going to ask you as we start this, would you be willing to read through this letter multiple times over the next several months? Would you read through it? You can, um, and it, you, you can even listen to it if that is more convenient for you. I will let you know that this morning um, I was sitting there and I uh, had my device out and I just pressed the button. You can press a button to play sometimes and I pressed the button to play the book of Ephesians. It was about 19 minutes as I sat there and drank coffee and had a little bit of a peanut butter that, in the morning this morning and went through the entire book in 19 minutes. You can read through this letter in less than 20 minutes. And as I even went through it this morning, just from my study and, prep and, and talking about who we are in the first three chapters and what we're to do in the last three chapters, it was a little bit different for me. And so can I encourage you to be very, very familiar and read through this letter several times over the next uh, weeks and even months. And can I encourage you, if you remember our opening illustration of this individual who was living as a homeless person, even though he had over $4 million accessible to him, do you understand what you have in Jesus Christ? Do you understand when he looks at you what he sees? The God of everything gave his son to die because of you, because he loves you. And as we look at these first three chapters and see who we are and then these last three chapters and see what we are supposed to do in this world, hopefully you will say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious and patient Father, we look to you very much so with an expectation that as we have your inspired word in our hands, we're able to run our eyes over it many times. It will be my prayer that hearts would be affected. I would pray, Heavenly Father, that individuals would see the riches that they have and they would walk in this world, not in a way of arrogance, because, Lord, as we learn what we have, it does not take us to a place where we think we are something, but it leads us to a place where you are everything. And would you allow us to walk in the time that we have in this world, not with constant defeat, not with bitterness and not with confusion, but coming from a place of what you have done for us and who you have made us into. 
And then God, would you allow us to act upon that, walk in a manner worthy of what you have called us to be. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, I'm I'm gonna ask Anna to play just a stanza on the piano. We're gonna give you a chance to pray. Maybe you are one who has not had an experience in your life where you've asked Jesus Christ to save you. You can do that right now. He died on a cross for the sins of every man and woman. And you can right now accept him as your savior if you would like to do that. Maybe something else has been on your heart. Constant failure in doing what you know God wants you to do. Spend some time in prayer.